Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkinall. How's it going, everyone? And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. With that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of June 5th, 2023. All right, Lee. Well, the one thing that I wanted to kind of touch on, and I know it's probably been something everyone's been looking at and seeing, it's the, uh, the new Move It exploit and vulnerability that's out there. Uh, so the article I'm referencing, hmm, here's the bleeping computer article, and it's the new move it transfers zero-day mass exploited in data theft attacks. So this is just kind of one of those interesting things where obviously the solution move it's used for is transferring large amounts of data securely from you know company to company, entity to entity. So there's a lot of data available. Um, that if you were able to take advantage of this product, you might gain access to. And it looks like that's what an attacker was able to figure out through SQL injection, bringing a web shell backdoor and then able to kind of siphon off data uh, that now they're starting to see some extortion type attempts, which they were expecting. But the interesting thing that, you know, people should be paying attention to, and there's actually a lot more articles that were even, even looking today, there's a lot of things out there around this. So it's worth now taking the time to Google it um, look at some, you know, top security vendors and some of their reporting and their references. And we even have some things that we're, we're pushing to build out as well. Uh, but it's just interesting, you know, what they're looking for is ASPX type things in the web root directory, uh, which is how that shell works. It's got a specific name. Obviously, if, if people don't patch this, that name can change to something else. So you can go off the indicators that are not see if you're affected initially. Uh, as well as there's um, some stuff we looked at that we saw with some reporting how when things get pre-compiled to build that file, uh, there are some other artifacts that get dropped on places to look to um, that can help. Uh, we'll have a package coming out soon in regards to that. Uh, but it's just kind of a, an interesting vulnerability because it, it it's not your traditional where people use this to gain access and go through your environment. They pretty much had data available right there on the edge. Um, and then their next you know loop tactic or path looked like extortion. So something everyone should be aware of, people should be digging into, paying attention to files that are written into any kind of website at the you know the root directory or the WW uh, root directory is always a good thing to pay attention to because that's where a lot of web shells uh, commonly get dropped. So you know something to kind of look at. And there's some really good technical details as far as how the CNC works um, with passwords and and things hard coded in the types of rejections that happen and and how those are being transferred. So what are your thoughts? From a threat hunter's perspective, um, because I think you've been working on some of the content that we're about to publish. My question to you is, from a threat hunter's perspective, um, one, what does this mean for my organization? How should I explain this to managers, directors, whoever needs to you know, be concerned uh, about this? How do I uh, explain the risk? And from more of a, I guess, a technical aspect of it. What are the log sources that you think 
are most critical to capturing this activity? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an interesting one. I think the risk part is important. To, I think this is a pretty high risk because, you know, it depends on what data you, you have kind of staged to share with this application, obviously. But if you use this as part of like a large part of your business processes, there's a lot of things you might not be able to account for that it's just directly exposed. So like I was saying before, when it comes to risk, usually attackers kind of use exploits and vulnerabilities um, to exploit, to gain kind of the foothold or run their own stuff. Um, in this case, it's really just getting that direct access to where they can start pulling things off of it. From a data perspective, you know, one of the common things that I think is important when you think about web shells is looking at um, connection timers, like duration. So if you have that kind of uh, net flow data, uh, network data, um, for your websites in general, it's always good to understand because they sh all the connections to your website should be fairly brief, you know, just long enough to move some files, move some things quickly, and then it stops. And then as people interact, you have, you know, other connections. So when you have those durations for a long time, it kind of has that web shell behavior where something is persistent, where someone basically has that terminal, you know, command line type access, whatever they've set up, and those should stand out. Um, and then also, like I was mentioning before, uh, if you have file create type logging, there's certain areas that are really good to be able to enable this. So some EDRs naturally monitor for certain file types so that, you know, they'll see those creations. And if you use Sysmon, in this case, you have got a Windows environment for the move it type stuff. Um, you could use Sysmon and, and specify either looking for certain directories where things are getting created and not necessarily from a, hey, if something gets created, it's bad. But that was one of the challenges, I think, when I was looking at this initially was, oh, it'd be really great to say, are any of these files, you know, being created there after a certain date or any of that kind of stuff to try to run things down? And just knowing there's probably a lot of people that don't have that data to hunt back through. So, you know, those initial steps of being able to have that data available is really going to be the more crux here when you look at that stuff. So um, it becomes more of a how do we then go to these specific servers and dig through the data manually ourselves versus having some sort of, you know, aggregated log source you can kind of dig through and correlate. Um, so those are some of the other things to, to think about there. So, yeah, I, I think I kind of answered your question, but, you know, there's there's a couple things that I think might be a little tough um, for some people. Cool. No, thank you for that insight. Because, um, you know, especially because this does seem to be a, uh, one of those bigger ticket items, uh, I just figured getting that information out would be great. All right, what do you got for us? So I have the uh, the latest, the DFA report. Um, they pushed out, it was it's titled Ice ID Macro Ends in uh, Noko Yawa Ransomware. It was published on May 22nd. And I'm actually not going to talk much about the specific report itself. This is a resource, I, I think the theme for my uh, topics this or articles this week was resources and tactics, right? So the, the DFA report has a bunch of reports. Um, that they like to title Real Intrusions by Real Attackers, The Truth Behind the Intrusion, where they will break down the the uh, incident, um, they map it to Miter, they get you a nice timeline of everything. So they provide all this high-level and technical information that both you know non-technical and technical individuals can take uh, a lot of information from and use it to their advantage. Um, so one thing I was looking at is, first of all, this is not the first ICED ID report incident they have reported on. Um, so what they like to do is they also they like to take their links from previous reports and add them into their newest. So as I was scrolling through reading, um, they linked to their old ICED ID report 
that was titled, sorry, it was a Conti ransomware uh, report that they um, report on as well. So what I'd like to do is because I'm trying to um, keep up with tactics, techniques, and procedures that the threat actors are using, um, I like to use that link, right? Pull up two windows and just take a look at the differences between the tactics and techniques used by the threat actor and literally almost like a side-to-side comparison. Now, what this allows you to do is to cover more techniques and um, tactics that threat actors use, um, right? So looking at the first ICE ID um, attack, which was actually titled Malicious ISO File Leads to Domain-Wide Ransomware, not the Conti Rant, um, you, know, you can go to the same discovery portion and see what they did for discovery. Um, and once again, because they like to break it down, they have a pretty much their report is consistently laid out the same way. But you can go to the discovery section, check on the discovery. You can go to defense evasion, see if they're doing anything different. In the older report, they looked at defense evasion. They only had process injection and a PowerShell command that turned off Windows antivirus, right? So if you take a look at the new report to see a look at their uh, defense evasion, it looks like the threat actor evolved. They're not using the PowerShell command to turn off antivirus, possibly because they're using something different. But now what they're using for defense evasion is process injection, which is still consistent. But then they're using file deletion. So they are dropping a file, executing it quickly, and then getting rid of it, which could make it harder for a forensics analyst to be able to pinpoint what it was if it doesn't exist anymore. Now, I'm sure uh, there's a lot of the, you know skilled forensics analysts that doesn't pose a problem to, but if you're looking at this from a log perspective, um, you might, or a log perspective than looking at the machine itself and saying, this file should be here, I don't see it, you know, it could cause issues. Uh, then, you know, they used renamed system utilities as well. Um, now, this is, these are just, quick examples of differences in techniques, but because it's consistent, again, um, you can always take a look at these reports, see how the threat actor is evolving, or if it's a completely different threat actor and they're just using ID, then you could see how different threat actors uh, approach the same situation. And then the final thing I like to do is once I'm done collecting all these TTPs from the threat actor, D4L publishes a yearly year review report so you can then take these tactics that you've documented and take a look at the whole year and uh, the 2022 year in review and see how it compared. Once again, did they make the map? Were they among the most popular or were they actually not even listed? So are these new techniques that are involved? And just going through this process, well, not only reading the report and applying it to your uh, organization and operationalizing it, but from a resource perspective of going through that process and honing your skills as a threat hunter um, and learning, it takes me a while to research these reports to figure out what everything is going on because I've been in the game for a while. There is still stuff that I don't understand completely just by looking at it. So going through that part and practicing the research and getting those reps and still, you know, it, it, it keeps my uh, skills sharp and, I, you know, being a kin uh, or a lifelong learner, this always helps. Um, but it's just a you know a nice little technique I use, and then you can adopt on your threat hunting team, or even as a SOC analyst, you can uh, do the same thing. No, I think that's great. When you, one of the things I hate seeing is 
when you see a report that's just listed with just the minor techniques and IDs and things. But when it is available and there's multiple reports for like the same actor, it is kind of a cool idea and a great way to see how the actor's capabilities may change and what persists in general. So that when you want to spend your time even to deal with that type of adversary, you know where they are more consistent or more agile, um, depending on what their targets are. So, you know, that's a really good approach. One of the things I, I, you know, it stood out to me and it was only because I was working on something just over the weekend with writing different code for different process injection type things. And I've come across before, and I think I've even commented on here, but when people do like the run DLL calls, you know, they usually have to call a specific DLL file that they're going to basically run. And then they have to reference the entry point. Usually it's the name of the function inside the DLL that they're going to call, but sometimes they use the pound number. And I didn't know what that was before. And over the weekend, I kind of discovered it. And then looking at this report, you know, it's got it in there as well. It's, it's basically the ordinal or ordinal, if I'm trying to pronounce it as clear as I can. And it's the numerical where that function lies that is going to be called. So their entry point on one example is number one. On another example, it was number 61 or something like that, or pound 61, pound one. So, and what's interesting too, you talked about, you know, renaming tools. They did rename the run um, DLL to calc, and they also did call a DLL that didn't have a DLL extension. So the only thing you'd have to go off of is that pattern of, hey, this kind of looks like run DLL running something. But the one thing that really stood out to me was that ordinal, like the comma, pound, and then a number when you have something that looks like a path is following an executable. Uh, you know, I think that's a, a strong indication of what you're seeing and it's not the normal behavior. So that really stood out to me as like a really interesting thing to look at as far as behavior goes, because they're basically using the same behavior of how they execute things and just trying to masquerade it, hide it in different ways. Um, so we're really kind of getting to the root of how are they doing that um, and what to look for. So that really stood out. Thought it was really insightful, you know, piece to kind of learn about that and still seeing this happen. Um, as uh, adversaries basically use that technique to run their code. So that one stood out. But just like anything else in those reports, um, there's a lot of common things you see as far as how things get uh, um, passed. There's, you know, base64 encoding. There is certain process chains that are consistent you would see with, with specific hunting. There's a lot of command exe slash c that we talk about. It's just getting berated a ton of them in a row, which it looks really bad. So just some things to think about when you look at these reports are like looking at those kind of why is this presented the way it is? And is there a way to look at detecting off of that, not just um, specific names even? Um, I thought that was kind of what my mind jumped out at. So that's all I really got on this one. Yeah, no, um, that's all I have for uh, that one as well. So what do you have next? Um, so I was going to jump on, you know, the Hacker News had a report about the alarming surge in TrueBot activity um, revealed with new delivery vectors. Um, so, you know, based on the report, basically they're saying there was a, a really big uptick and they think that they were leveraging the NetRix auditor um, as well as the Raspberry Robin as delivery vectors. Uh, but I dug into um, the Carbon Black report that was talking about it. And there was some really good things to be like paying attention to. And they were saying they were, they were expecting there was a lot of drive-by activities from like, you know, drive-by downloads because they were seeing that um, 
they were getting a lot of file creates from the Chrome um, application. So, you know, your, your web browser for Chrome. And, you know, then they're basically seeing that the update exe that's being executed is actually being executed from the downloads directory, which then corresponds kind of to, you know, that being pulled down that way. Um, and then it basically does a bunch of things to execute, pull down more payloads and call out. Um, but that's kind of the interesting thing. Like, I never pay too much attention all the time for um, file creates um, for certain file types. And it might be an interesting correlation to be looking at, hey, if you have certain web browsers you're typically using and you have file create logging, you know, what kind of file types are they creating? And maybe certain file types you care more about others. Um, but, you know, that was kind of the thing that I don't think was mentioned in the, um, the Hacker News report. Uh, so it's always good to pivot into other things to find these kind of nuggets of things uh, that are worth uh, taking a look at. So that was kind of my big takeaway from there. But, you know, basically, if anyone's not familiar with the TrueBot, they're kind of tied to the Evil Core, Silence Group, Group IB, um, kind of the Russia a specific group that does a lot of uh, crim criminal type activity for their type of adversary profile. So, yeah, what do you think? I think you called it out. It's, it's very important not to uh, just start looking for um, things that that seem malicious, right? And what I mean by that is you're not going to go into a threat hunt and find malicious.exe, right? Right. Or malware.exe. And then I guess you got to be careful about what you filter out um, in your queries and what you exclude and what you include. But going from an inclusion perspective, normally if you include something, you are zooming in on one specific idea that you're looking for. Excluding, you're slowly chopping off, um, you know, things that you identify as legitimate operations within your own organization, which is a challenge in itself because understanding your ever-evolving organization and their business processes is tough. Right. Like there's the even like the veterans in the organization that have adapted to multiple things, you know, they might not still know exactly what's not legitimate. Now, going back to understanding or how that works is if you exclude something like update.exe because you always see it running from the legitimate directory. And like I said, you point this out specifically is that the update.exe ran from the downloads. So paying attention to the directory itself and where it's running from, that is really important, especially we see this a lot too with living off the land binaries. When someone will try, uh, you know, DLL sideloading where they'll name a program like calc.exe or winward.exe, but drop it in the temp folder. And then they also drop a DLL. You know, just because you see that running, um, if you filtered out calc.exe in any of your technology, you wouldn't be blind. Mm -hmm. And then you wouldn't have seen calc.exe rank on that time. Now, I hope that makes sense, everyone, but I, 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 that was the biggest uh, takeaway from this article that, that I saw. And, and like you said, you, you nailed it. Cool. So what do you got? So once again, the the next article I have, it is actually a just another resource. Um, it's not super technical. It's from Sentinel-1, or titled, Inside the Mind of a Cyber Attacker. Tactics, Techniques, and Procedures, or TTPs, every security practitioner should know. 
And if you've listened to us at all or attended any of our workshops, minor pulleys or anything, you know we preach TTPs because we're looking for humans. We're not looking for the automation. You know, we we want to focus on the human aspect and what sticks out. What are those behaviors that are interesting to us? Um, but they started with the aspect of understanding your adversary. What are their motivations and goals of the cyber attacker? Um, they didn't list all of them because, I mean, everyone's different. But they hit the main ones. Right? They hit financial gain, espionage, disruption, uh, especially disruption nowadays uh, with the geopolitical um, environment or um, yeah, environment that we're in currently. And then they go through and they say, you know, how how do these TTPs differ um, and how do they help cyber defenders? So what's a tactic? It's an overarching goal. You know, what's a technique? It's a more specific way or a method that the threat actor uses to launch and engage. Now, what's a procedure? This is the step-by-step sequence uh, of actions that make up the attack. So not only are they throwing you motives, they're explaining the TTPs and what they mean by that. So they're setting the stage for you to continue on and really uh, pull this information in so that you can authorizationalize it. And then they throw social engineering, uh, exploring vulnerabilities, living up land, so on. But it's a very, very good article because the way they laid it out, it's like the foundation of the idea of threat hunting. Because if you know your organization is focused on one threat actor, or you know, it could be many, but it could be the same goal, right? If you're in banking, the, there's a high chance that the threat actors that are targeting you are looking for financial gain. So you can get into the mindset of, okay, well, if a threat actor wants our money, what are past reports that I can look at? What are past articles? And according to this, what are some TTPs that they've used to get in? And then you can start building your threat hunting um, backlog based off of that. Uh, and I just think it was a really well put together article laying things out and saying, hey, this is what you should be aware of or at least thinking about when you're starting to become a defender or a threat hunter. The difference is, or the, I guess the only difference is, is that as a incident responder, you're thinking more on the aspect of I'm looking for stuff that already existed with like, you know, being triggered by alerts or detections. And from a threat hunter's perspective, you want to start taking a look at how have they behaved in the past? Um, but once again, another really good article. Great on the processes and procedures side of that house. Uh, because honestly, that really sets threat hunting aside. Um, because as an incident responder, if you get an intel report that has a bunch of known bad IOCs, you can put that in your environment, scan for it, and if you found something, you know it's malicious. And then you can turn on the instant response um, procedure, right? As a threat hunter, we're looking for some things that might not exist. So having a sound approach and a consistent process that you take each time when dealing with data, whether it be false positives or true positives, and having this information in the back of your mind while you're doing it is extremely important and will set you, uh, you know, set you apart from uh, the rest of the team. Now, I really like this article. It kind of made me think about, so I like how they laid everything out. I like how they're calling out the, the person behind the attack. And, and we always say this when we talk about attackers in general. But 
when I was seeing every bullet, like for instance, like just looking at lateral movement as an example, the first one they list is remote desktop, RDP hijacking. And then, you know, when I see stuff like that, I like to ask myself the question, well, why would they do that? And why would they not do that? And I feel like if I can answer those questions, like maybe they would do RDP hijacking because we use a ton of RDP and we don't really do anything, you know, protecting it. And it's trivial to do or whatever the reason for the why. And the why not might be, oh, well, we actually have a lot of really good tools that prevent that. Or we have a process that kind of prevents that from being utilized. Um, or, you know, they know that whatever the technique they're using is really loud. So like, you know, you see brute force attacks as a one blow that. Why would they not be doing brute force attacks? Because, you know, that kind of lets people know they're there if they're already inside or whatever it is. But I feel like if you're able to look at techniques, um, especially if you're, you know, trying to look at the profile of an adversary that you're, you're worried about as a potential threat, asking those whys and being able to answer those questions and then compare them to yourself kind of lets you know how do you stand up against these types of behaviors and if people, what would make someone consider using them um, based on the level of difficulty or how successful they'd be in your environment, um, as well as your abilities to defend against those types of things. Uh, so that's kind of where my head was going, just thinking like, well, why would someone do this or why would someone not do this? And if I can think like that and put myself kind of in their shoes, I feel like it puts me in a better position for how I'll solve that problem. Um, so sometimes it kind of helps to emulate some of these things yourself if you wanted to, you know, test it all out. But uh, I think it's a great stance to kind of be in um, when you think about defending and looking at behaviors. No, I completely agree. But uh, what do you have to wrap this up? So yeah, I've got, uh, it was a Cyware article that led me to the actual trend uh, micro article, but it basically was touching on the new black suit ransomware exhibits striking similarities with the Royal ransomware. And this is something we've, we've talked about a lot, right? A lot of the ransomware groups kind of take from each other. Um, the members move from group to group and, you know, take some of their stuff with them as well. Our new groups get spun up and it really is just made up of people from older groups. Uh, but when they were actually looking at the code base, you know, they, they were talking about the similarities uh, being like, you know, the 90% as far as from a code comparison. Um, and the one thing that I always like seeing is they did comparison with the EXXI variants. Um, and those are the most closely related. Uh, and it's just funny because I feel like all the attacks, especially from ransomware with the ESXI, are just all very, very common. They're either using the same code base or there's only really one great way to be able to effectively... Um, ransom or target those. Uh, but the one thing that I, I liked in the Trend Micro article was, you know, they talked about the different arguments you can pass, uh, like the command line. And they're saying, they're trying to make the comparison, like, oh, in the Royal Ransomware, you've got this argument that basically does the same thing. So like an example, um, they had an, uh, an argument that was dash ID, and in the black suit, it's dash name. But this information you provide after that's the same. It's... Um, supposed to be for the same purpose so just like a renaming of the arguments um basically but in some cases that's kind of good because if you know if you already have a position to that you've created content associated with royal ransomware and their argument structure and what they might do um then you can also kind of basically use this as your cheat sheet to kind of rip and replace those arguments with the new arguments 
or make, you know, one kind of big hunt query that's kind of looking for both if you wanted to, however you want to solve that. Uh, but I thought it was really good information from that perspective. I like how they did the comparison from one to the other, um, from what you would see from a capability and potentially a logging perspective, not just uh, on the, you know, low level code base. Uh, so I thought that was kind of really cool to kind of see that. Um, and also we always talk about how ransomware groups mature. They don't really mature independent of each other. So, um, so yeah, that was like the biggest call I don't want to, you know, bring attention to. No, I really like how this, this week kind of had similar themes of comparisons and process and procedures and not just looking at what's in front of you, but looking at what's happened. Uh, right. Being in a, <laughs> being an endpoint guy, I love looking at different types of arguments and what they mean. Right. They just laid this out completely and it's fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. You're right. They're always learning from each other because, you know, ransomware is a smash and grab type operation. It's not a espionage where you need to sit down, you know, you got to sit around and just wait and wait and wait. Then I still data. You're just going in as strong as you can. So if you can learn what the fastest techniques to get in there and get out, it's absolutely important. They'll learn faster from each other. Mm -hmm. um, I, and it's good to see the uh, the good old, um, I guess the, um, like the, <laughs> I guess the, the things that te stand the test of time. Um, for example, I know we have a hunt package that covers shadow copies being deleted. And guess what shows up at the very end? <laughs> the system, the VSS admin.exe delete shadows all quiet. It, it's, it's neat to see how they evolve, but still see what stays the same. Because if you see what's staying the same, that's probably because it's working really well. But yeah, this was a really cool article and uh, thanks for bringing it to my attention. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that closes out our section where we kind of cover the, the top five things we wanted to talk to. Um, but I wanted to make a quick mention this month, uh, June 28th, uh, I'll be actually hosting a webinar called Threat Hunting, Shifting Gears, and Query Tuning. And that's just going to be about how when you're threat hunting, when you take a query or work your way through a query, massage it into something that you can mature into something else or how to even deal with the data on the back end when it's not giving you, when it gives you more results and more things than you're expecting and, and how to kind of sift through that strategies. So we'll be able to walk through that. And, and I think that's the only update we have this time around. But... I just really want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. I'm looking forward to syncing back up with everyone next week. And with that, that closes out the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of June 5th, 2023. And thanks for joining us, everyone. Happy hunting. Happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, Check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.